Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. Thank you, Scott and team, for leading us in musical worship this morning. Why don't you bow with me one more time as we approach the word. Lord, your words are pure words, like silver refined in a, ser- uh, in a furnace, on the ground, purified seven times. And Lord, as we approach your word, we pray that we would do so with reverence and humility, that we would look to see the face of the one who is matchless, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may, Lord, our hearts burn within us as the hearts of those disciples did on the road to Emmaus as they spoke with Christ. May our hearts, too, burn within us as we behold all that you are in your word. Prick our consciences, stir our affections, and lead us to love the Lord Jesus Christ with greater fervor. We pray this for his sake. Amen. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. Our reading will begin at the end of Genesis 49 in verse 28, which is one verse of overlap from what Pastor Sean preached last Sunday, Genesis 49, 28, and we will read to the end of the book. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. 
Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us. And pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Jacob's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. We have before us this morning the final verses of the book of Genesis. And... The profundity of these verses is made clear by remembering that as we have made our way through the book of Genesis, we have traveled from Eden to Egypt. We have made our way from the glorious bliss of the garden created in perfection by the Holy One, the triune God, to Egypt, a foreign land, a pagan land, and not the promised land. One writer, Michael Morales, has put it so well. He said, The trajectory of the book of Genesis is from fullness of life 
to death. And that in relation to alienation from the presence of God. We have gone from perfect fellowship with God in the garden, chapters 1 and 2, to the deaths of Jacob and Joseph, chapters 49 and 50. And this contrast shows us that the human race really has fallen so very far. Our situation is dire. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to separation from God. Sin really is our biggest problem. This past week, it's been fascinating to watch the live stream in Westminster Hall as hundreds of thousands of people have filed past the Queen's coffin, which lies in state until later tonight into the early morning British Standard Time. And as people have filed past and lined up in this queue, the queue sometimes, the the wait time for the queue sometimes being as long as 12 to 24 hours, as they've lined up to view this coffin and you you watch the live stream, they, 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 they get next to the coffin on either side, they look at the coffin, they give a little bow and they walk on. Some are crying. Everyone is thoughtful. Everyone is sober, and absolutely everyone is thinking about death. Hundreds of thousands of people confronted by this reality of death. And tomorrow morning, as Sean has already alluded to in his pastoral prayer, something even more profound will happen. An estimated 4.1 billion people are set to watch the Queen's funeral, are set to tune in. This will be a world record broadcast, over half the world, friends, will be confronted by death. And over the course of the funeral, perhaps they will think about their own death for all 4.1 billion of those people will one day stop to breathe if the Lord tarries. Their hearts will stop beating. Their lungs will stop taking in oxygen for their bodies and exchanging it with that CO2 that needs to leave. There's no guarantee that any of us here will make it to the live stream tomorrow and view the funeral or to Thanksgiving or to Christmas. All of us here will face this great last enemy, death. This week I heard Alistair Begg say the following words during an interview. I quote, certainly in this past period of time, If there is one great lesson that has come out of this COVID experience, it is that the Western world is manifestly scared to death of death and has no answer to the question, end quote. Death is an uncomfortable reality for our world. Our world has no hope to anchor them in the wake of death. Our world lacks confidence in the face of death and sometimes Us Christians, you and I perhaps, can lack confidence in the face of death. We can shrink back at its prospect and want to ignore its reality. But as we come to this last chapter, these last 31 verses in the book of Genesis, they teach us something profound. Because as death is faced at the end of the book of Genesis, it is faced with confidence. All 31 verses are marked By this confidence. And what we find is that this confidence is built on two glorious realities. 
the passage teaches us that God's great promises and God's good purposes grant us confidence in the face of death. God's great promises and God's good purposes grant us confidence in the face of death. These two great realities manifest themselves in the three scenes of the text. Think about it as a drama. There are three scenes. So why don't you take a look with me at the first scene. Scene number one, the deathbed of Jacob. Here's what we learn. Hope in God's great promises gives us confidence in the face of death. Hope in God's great promises gives us confidence in the face of death. One theologian summarizing the Bible's definition of hope concludes this. Hope does not spring from a person's mind. It is not snatched out of midair. It results from the promises of God. It is grounded in God. End quote. Friends, hope is a confident and eager expectation grounded in God. And as Christians, our hope is sure, it is steadfast and of the best substance because it is rooted in who God is, in what God has said, and in all that God has done. And we see this sort of hope, this hope with substance, expressed in two different ways in the first section of the text. Verse 29 in chapter 49, all the way to verse 14 in chapter 50. First, we see hope in burial. Do you see it? Jacob is an abundantly hopeful man on his deathbed. He has just completed blessing his two grandsons and his 12 sons. And now he has one task left to complete before he dies. And what he does is he reiterates his instructions to be buried in Canaan, not in Egypt. He has made Joseph swear to this burial arrangement in Genesis 47. And now at the end of Genesis 49, Jacob repeats his final request in the hearings of all of his sons. And you can see from the text that very particular instructions are given. Jacob describes the location and the history of the burial site. Verse 29 all the way to 32. This is a burial site where the former men of promise and their wives were buried, Abraham and his wife Sarah, Isaac and his wife Rebekah, Leah, and she awaits Jacob's death to be buried now with him. This burial site that Abraham purchased, this is the burial site too that Abraham purchased from the Hittites back in Genesis 23. And the entirety of Genesis 23 is taken up with the acquisition of this little piece of land because Moses, the author of Genesis, wants us to see that this parcel of land is really a parcel of promise. It represents in miniature what God will do in the future. He will give the Israelites the land of Canaan just as he had promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring, he said, I will give this land. And it is the only thing that Abraham owns in the land of Canaan, this little burial plot, this parcel of promise. And it is a reminder that God had made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he will fulfill it. John Salehammer writes, In this small purchase was embodied the hope in God's promise that one day in the future it would belong to Abraham and his seed. Jacob is confident and eagerly expectant that God will make Israel a great nation 
that would bless the nations. That God will fulfill his promises made to Abraham and Isaac before him. Jacob is sure of this. That God's promises will not die with him. So Jacob's instructions for burial point to his future hope in the promises of God. Jacob's hope at the end of his life is the Christian's hope at the end of their life. It is a hope that God will continue to work, that God will continue to act, that God will continue to fulfill his promises. And thus this senior saint can die with confidence because the hope that he has is grounded in this God. And something I just want to point out on the side is Jacob's transformation. Do you remember Jacob back when we were introduced to him earlier in the text? He goes from a deceiving man to a hopeful man. He goes from a man who wrestles with God to a man who hopes in God. Oh, the sweet sanctification that the Lord pours out on his saints such that gray hairs and a cane, oftentimes in the church of God, can sometimes equal sanctification. May God do it in all of us as we age. The same sort of transformation. So there is hope in burial. Next, notice verse 1 in chapter 50 all the way to chapter 14. There is hope in mourning in this text. The first 14 chapters of chapter 50 repeat this word again and again. They're grieving, they're grieving, they're mourning, they're mourning. The chapter opens with Joseph grieving. He falls on his father's face, he weeps over him, he kisses his body. Joseph loved his father. He did not get to spend all the years that he wanted to with his father. We we see in the text also that the Egyptians wept for Jacob, 70 days. And when these days have passed, Joseph speaks to Pharaoh and asks permission to bring his father's body to the burial site, this parcel of promise in Canaan. Pharaoh grants permission. And then we see another party of people mourning and grieving over Jacob. It says in verse 9 that a great company leaves for Canaan. Then in verse 10, we're told that The burial party laments to such an extent at the threshing floor of Atad. And Joseph, among them for seven days, mourning for his father, to such an extent that the people of the land take notice and rename the site, the mourning of Egypt, because of this great lamentation that was made at this parcel of promise. As Joseph and the company of Egyptians mourn, there are hints of hope, though. Do you notice the hints of hope? Hint of hope, number one, there is an afterlife. You see it in 49.33. Jacob breathed his last and was gathered to his people. There's a glimmer of hope there, even in death. Jacob is gathered to his people. There is an afterlife. Second hint of hope there, there is hope foreshadowed in this text, and maybe the first readers of the text would see this a little bit more clearly than we do. But in verse 9, as it details a miniature exodus out of Egypt to Canaan, a great company, verse 9 says, of people, Egyptians, some people in the military, Joseph's family, as they exit out of Egypt, there is this foreshadowing, there is this hint that one day, There will be another exodus sort of like this where God will deliver his people. And so even in the midst of mourning in these 14 verses, there are glimmers of hope. 
And this passage reminds us of the importance of grieving. Friends, it is important and appropriate to feel the effects of the fall and to respond accordingly. Our Savior himself wept at the grave of his dear friend Lazarus in John 11. Not because he didn't have any hope for Lazarus. He was about to raise Lazarus in a few seconds. He wept because he was so grieved by the effects of the fall and he so hated the consequences of sin. Grief is not weakness. It is natural. Grief is what we are meant to feel as we stand by the grave of a loved one. Death is an intruder. Death is an enemy. We dearly miss those who have been taken away and sometimes we have no hope of seeing them again because they have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ the Savior and we grieve and we mourn and there are pangs of mourning that hurt us throughout life as we think about this person who we so dearly loved. But when someone does die in Christ, we who are in Christ have a glorious hope. Paul tells us that Uh, Paul tells us in Thessalonians that we do not grieve as those with no hope. Why? Because Christ has risen from the dead and his resurrection guarantees the resurrection of those who have been united to him by faith. When Christ comes again on that glorious day, the dead in Christ will rise from their graves. They will be caught up in the air with the Lord and they will be with him forever. Death is swallowed up in victory, Paul says. Death's sting has been taken away for those who are in Christ. And so for the Christian, yes, there is grieving, but there is also hope in the face of death. Perhaps there are some here this morning who have not bowed the knee to King Jesus. And I want to ask you a question this morning. I'm so glad you're here among us. I'm so glad you get to hear this question. And I want you to deal with this seriously. What is your hope in the face of death? What are you leaning on in the face of death? Maybe there are those here this morning who have come to church their whole life and they followed the faith of their parents or their grandparents or they know that being at church is a good thing to do. But as you look at your own life, you know that there is no evidence of salvation in your life. You do not live the fruit of righteousness. And 1 John would say, if you don't live the fruit of righteousness, how do we know? How can there be any assurance that you are a Christian? Maybe you have persisted in not obeying the Lord in baptism. You know you need to do it and you continue to to reject the Lord in, in simple ways like this. If you're here today, what is your hope in death? What are you leaning on? What is that sure and steady anchor that when you depart, when your eyes shut, and when you sleep the sleep of death, what is, what is keeping you in that moment? What will hold you up? Do you have a hope of a resurrection? Friend, think on this. You are mortal. You are a vapor that is in the world for a split second. You might live 96 years like the queen has, and it is a blink of the eye. Study history. The cycles of death are are, are fast and they are furious. What is your hope in death? God will not accept your good deeds. God will not accept you because you were a quote-unquote good person. God will not accept you because you were generous. God will not accept you because you were less hostile than others were towards him. God will not be bargained with on the last day. 
God will not accept your church attendance and your religious deeds. God will not accept the faith of your parents. Friend, hear the good news this morning. God will only accept those who are in Christ. Those who bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ who died the death that we deserve and lives the life because of his resurrection that we too can live if we would trust in him. Friend, what is your hope in the face of death? Hope in God's great promises gives the Christian confidence in the face of death. There is hope in burial and there is hope in mourning. That's the first scene. Scene number two. The response of Joseph's brothers. Here's what we learn. Certainty in God's good purposes gives us confidence in the face of death. Hope in God's great promises gives us confidence in the face of death. Certainty in God's good purposes gives us confidence in the face of death. Jacob is dead and buried. He was confident in the face of death. But for his sons, you notice in verses 15 all the way to 21, there is very little confidence. They are worried. They are fearful. They say to themselves, look with me, verse 15, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Their guilt is resurfacing. To this point, the brothers have not repented of their past actions. They felt the weight of them in chapter 42. And Joseph has provided them with assurance that they need not be distressed in chapter 45. But now that their father is dead, guilt resurfaces. And it comes flooding back in. And they are scared for their well-being. Their fear causes them to send a message to Joseph. And they tell Joseph, hey, before our father died, he gave these instructions to you. Please forgive the transgressions and sins of your brothers. Now, whether or not Jacob actually said that, we don't know. There's an absence of a record of that in the book of Genesis, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And after this message is sent, the brothers actually appear before him in person, and they fall down before him and declare that they are his servants. We we are your servants, Joseph. Forgive us. There is repentance. They submit themselves to him. And this grieves Joseph. He weeps for the seventh time in the book of Genesis. Joseph's a crier. He's grieves because he, he grieves because he does not want his brothers to live in fear. And he is likely grieving because he's going, is this really what you think of me? That I will deal wickedly with you. That I will be vengeful. That I will exact vengeance upon you now that our father is dead. And so through tears, you can see Joseph asking the rhetorical question in the text, am I in the place of God? And the answer is evident, no. Joseph looks at himself and he says, I am not judge. Joseph is not in a position to exact revenge on his brothers. He, he, he might, I mean, he doesn't because it's not written yet, but the, the words of Romans 12, 19 come to mind. Vengeance is mine. Joseph was sure of this. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. He knew that judgment falls in the hands of God. And with that, Joseph forgives his brothers by expressing a truth that aptly summarizes the entire life of Joseph, the book of Genesis, and salvation history at large. You notice that statement because you know it. You meant evil against me, 
Joseph says. But God meant it for good. The brothers meant to destroy their brother by throwing him into a pit and selling him to Midianite traders. They were envious. They were selfish. God meant it for good. Potiphar's wife had meant her lust and lying for evil, for selfish gain. But God had meant it for good. Friends, behold our God, the only sovereign, the one who is sovereign over all things, even evil. Even the worst of men, even the worst of sins, even the worst of circumstances are meant by God for good. God is not the cause of evil. God does not condone the evil. God does not endorse the evil. God is not stained by evil. Rather, as John Piper has put it, God means or intends or wills this sinful human willing in such a way that he does not sin, but in perfect wisdom and righteousness and goodness aims at and achieves a good end and is himself good at every point. How is it that God is sovereign over sin, how, that, how it is that God is sovereign over sin is beyond our comprehension. It is a mystery. It is mind-bending. Piper himself admits in his book called Providence that he doesn't understand it. But situation after situation in Scripture shows us that this is the case. And the greatest example is the cross of Jesus Christ. Look with me. Acts chapter 2. Just hear me read it. Talking about the death of Christ, the Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So lawless men meant evil. God meant it for good. Acts chapter 4. As the believers are praying, they say the following words. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the the people of Israel, they meant evil by killing Christ. God meant it. For good. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Friends, a mind-bending doctrine like this is not supposed to aggravate us. It is not supposed to create arguments. It is rather a truth that should cause us to worship the one whose ways are higher than our ways and whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. When we look at the sovereignty of God and do not understand it, it is meant to drive us to humble worship. Joseph wants his brothers to take comfort in the good purposes of God. The brothers are not excused. They are culpable for the evil that they have committed. Yet God meant their evil actions for good, for the saving of many lives, he says. God had saved many lives in Egypt and throughout the world through his providence in Joseph's life. And this purpose has been God's purpose all throughout salvation history. 
It is God's purpose to save many lives, to give spiritual life, eternal life to those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There are many that the Lord Jesus Christ came to save. Revelation 7 gives us details about a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne of the Lamb and declaring salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. There is a multitude, an innumerable multitude that Christ has come to save. The saving of many lives has been God's salvation purposes for all of salvation history. This is God's great purpose that he would be glorified in the saving of many lives. And this certainty in God's good purposes gives us confidence in the face of death. For it reminds us that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. God's good purposes will stand in life and in death. Certainty in God's good purposes helps us face the worst of circumstances, even in death. It gives us confidence in the face of death. That's scene two. Turn with me to scene three. Begins in verse 22. The deathbed of Joseph. And here's what we learn. Faith in God's great promises gives us confidence in the face of death. Faith in God's great promises gives us confidence In the face of death. That great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry calls this scene Joseph's last will and testament. Now, last will and testament usually expresses the final wishes of the deceased individual. It helps the living to know what was on the mind of the person as they faced death. And often assets are divvied up in the last will and testament of a person, usually property and possessions. But that's not what Joseph does here. Instead, his last will and testament expresses faith in the promises and purposes of God. Hebrews 11.22 gives us commentary on these final verses in Genesis. The, The verse says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith. Joseph's final words are very important because they are words of faith. Note this, that at the end of Genesis, Joseph is dead, he is in a coffin, and he is in Egypt, and yet we are supposed to see faith written all over these final words. Joseph trusted in the promises that God had made to his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, His faith is expressed in this text in two ways. Joseph's faith is expressed in his mention of the Exodus. You see it there plainly in the text. Joseph says, God will surely visit you and bring you up out of this land. Hey guys, God will deliver. He will do what he said he will do. I want you to know that. I'm about to die. These are are wasted words if I don't believe them. God will deliver. God will be good to his word, and it foreshadows that great day when the Lord will bring the Israelites out of the oppressive Egypt and into the great promised land. So Joseph's faith is expressed by the mention of the Exodus. Joseph's faith is also expressed in his directions for burial. Joseph instructs his family to carry his bones out of Egypt. He, his intent 
is the same as Jacob's. He is confident that God will give the land of Canaan to his people. And you know what we see later on in Scripture? As the people are fleeing Egypt in Exodus chapter 13, Moses makes special effort to grab the bones of Joseph, and the text tells us, hey, we're taken out of here, we're taken off, we've got to bring these bones with us. And then in the book of Joshua, which is a book all about the land, when you think Joshua, it's all land. God has given the promised land to his people and they are taking over it. Do you know how Joshua concludes? Second last verse. Joshua's thinking, okay, what's the most important thing I can say? Second last verse. And they buried the bones of Joseph there in Shechem, which was in Canaan. 2432. Here God has been good to his promises. That is what Joseph's faith was rooted in. His faith is expressed in his directions for burial. And as he breathes his last, Joseph wants the covenant family's assurance and hope and certainty and faith to be in this God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This God who created the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them. This God who preserved Noah and his family during the flood. This God who picked a pagan man in a pagan land to be the father of promise. This God who provided a son for Abraham and Sarah when they were seniors. When Sarah's womb, the Bible tells us, was as good as dead. This God who was faithful to a constantly unfaithful covenant family. This God who providentially used a pit... Potiphar's wife and prison to promote Joseph to prime minister in Egypt. At the end of his life, Joseph is confident in this God, this God who is able, this God who is faithful. Joseph is confident in the face of death because he knows who his God is. And friends, we can face death with the same sort of confidence. Confidence in God's great promises, confidence in God's good purposes, because in Christ, we are safe in this life and in the life to come. In Christ, death has lost its sting. In Christ, we have the glorious and sure hope of the resurrection. In Christ, we have every confidence in the face of death. I love John Newton so much. I love to read his letters. I love to read biographies on him. And there are two phrases that John Newton said at the end of his life that were striking. Phrase number one, he said this, I am like a person going on a journey in a stagecoach who expects to arrive every hour and is frequently looking out at the window for it. He looks at his death with expectancy. Quote number two, I am packed and sealed, waiting for the post. Oh, I am waiting for that moment where I will be united with my God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have to ask this question as we think about statements like this. How can someone speak that confidently about their death? About something that so many of us dread so violently? How can someone look forward to their departure with that sort of expectancy And hope. Well, his confidence, friends, was grounded in a reality that he never forgot, even in the most troubling times of bodily failure. As Newton died, he spoke of the grounds of his confidence. He said this, My memory is nearly gone, but two things I remember. 
I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. The Heidelberg Catechism begins with the following question and answer. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. God's great promises and God's good purposes give us confidence in the face of death. Why don't we sing a fitting song, a song that reminds us of this hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't you stand with me?